And so I feel like it was wise to move some more out of equities into real estate. And I think it's probably good that we can't check the value of our real estate every day on our phone. <laughs> I think it helps sleep better at night. And yeah, in theory, maybe real estate, you know, maybe my real estate's not worth as much now as it was a year ago, but I'm not going to be sweating it because it's the long-term horizon. And, and it, it, if, if it's fallen, it's probably not fallen 30%, right? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Dan Rowley. Dan is a corporate CFO who has been investing in real estate for some time now. He actually started investing in real estate where he used to live in California. He got up to 20 doors and then had a realization that he wasn't achieving everything he wanted to achieve with his real estate investments. So he changed his strategy and shifted to investing in multifamily syndications. And today we're digging into why he made that shift, how that shift has gone for him, lessons he's learned along the way, and so much more. Dan has actually been on the show before about 18 months ago, and this is a check-in to learn how things are going for him. Again, how he's changed his strategy, lessons he's learned, and so much more to grow in the real estate syndication space as a passive investor and a little bit getting into the active side as well. So he's grown quite a lot and you're going to learn so much on this show today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Boat. I'm a real estate investor. And so far I've acquired, partnered on, invested in, or otherwise had a hand at over $150 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. And I'm here to help you escape the Wall Street casino. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Dan Rowley. He is a successful CFO in the digital marketing agency space. Today, we're learning about his journey as a real estate investor, how he shifted his strategy over time to build more passive cash flow and more passive wealth while he works his day job. A lot of great info in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today, for coming back on the show. I'm very excited to revisit your journey with you, going from owning 20 doors on your own to repositioning into much larger multifamily syndications. Your journey along the way, the last time that we checked in and had you on the show was much earlier in the pandemic, about 18 months ago. Things have changed very considerably in the market, but also for you in that time. And let to learn and get a catch up on and get an update on what's happened with you, what, how you've changed your portfolio and things along those lines. But before we get to that, tell us a bit about yourself and your professional background so we can know a little bit more about Dan Rowley. Great. Thanks, Taylor, for having me on again. Yeah, you're right. It's been about 18 months or so since we first did the first interview. So updates would include, you know, settled now in Cary, North Carolina, been here almost two years. So we've gotten more settled as a family into the schools and activities and church and things like this. So we feel like it's a good fit for us. We're glad we moved here from California. Professionally, my day job is CFO and general manager for a digital, digital advertising network. So that's what I've been doing for almost a decade. And it's been a good, a good job. It's provided good income and good opportunity. But I have to say, real estate's been my side gig for a decade. I'm probably a little more interested and passionate about real estate. And that's why we're talking, right? I love it. I love it. So 
Let's rewind to, you know, when you lived in California, you owned 20 doors on your own. And there must have been a time where you were like, this isn't working. Something's not quite right. This isn't helping me reach my goals. Take us back to that period when you decided to start making a change from owning that real estate on your own to investing more passively. Sure. Yeah. You know, we were able to buy some properties initially in California after the kind of the real estate dip, things were on sale, and those turned out to be great investments. And then as prices rose, it didn't make as much sense, right, to continue to buy in California. There's a lot of other places the numbers pencil better. So we started to go out of state and buy. And, you know, we bought in Kansas City, Houston, and then Idaho and Utah. And at some point, though, I began to realize, even though some of these were you know, pretty good opportunities, it's not a super scalable model, right? Because uh, you know, even if you have property managers handling most of the details, there's still a lot of administrative stuff and taxes and other things that you just got to be involved in. So I felt like, you know, getting to 40, 50 doors, something like that was going to be more of a full-time job than I wanted to take on, right? And so I believed in real estate and the returns it can provide, the tax benefits, but it became, seemed like more of a heavy lift when, you, when you're owning your own stuff, right? So I scaled back in the last couple of years after I learned about syndications and that you can obviously participate in ownership, shared ownership, and you get the same tax benefits and it's very passive and you don't have to do the work. You leave it to professionals to do the work. So once I kind of caught on to that model, I say three or four years ago when I started investing heavily in, in syndications, it, the light bulb went on. It, um, it was just a much easier way to diversify into different markets, different asset classes. And again, you're doing a lot less work. You know, you can, I think the returns can be favorable whether you own your own or with syndications. I'm not going to say one, you're going to outperform the other, but I think at a certain point you have to realize how much time you have, how much energy you want to put into it. And, you know, just buying and acquiring more rental properties was going to be kind of more work than I wanted to sign up for, right? And so syndications and, and private equity real estate have enabled me to kind of just continue to invest even at a faster rate, but without, you know, doing the heavy lifting, right? The, the worst more really on the front end, frankly, where you want to make sure that you're doing a lot of due diligence around the sponsors and the, the regions and the asset classes and the properties you're investing in, right? So it doesn't mean there's no work, but it's all kind of on the front end. And I think the main things you want to establish with syndication investing is, you know, does the operator have competency and are they trustworthy, right? Do they know what they're doing? Have they done it before? And, you know, checking a lot of references and you know, people that invested to make sure that they, they follow through on what, you know, what they're saying they're going to do. Right. I love that. I love that. Great advice. And we were talking before we started recording about different property classes and how your investing strategy has shifted over time. We're talking here about A, B, and C class multifamily real estate. Can you give us a rundown of, first off, your thoughts about that? Because people always wonder, like, how do I classify an A versus B versus C? How do you think about that, the different property classes? And then we'll talk about how you shifted your strategy to move from C a bit upward, you know, up the chain. Sure. I think, uh, I mean, in general, right, class A is the newer build, maybe within 10 to 15 years old, you know, so much you know, nicer, newer units, much less deferred maintenance, you know, typically maybe in the nicer areas of town, because that's where they tend to be building newer stuff. Uh, and rent levels obviously are going to be higher, you know, in a lot of cases here in the Southeast, you know, class A is around 2000 unit or something like this for the rent level. Class B is much more the middle market. You know, you have probably a mix of professionals and, and or early workers, but it's more affordable. Uh, it's usually older product, you know, 19, 
80s, 90s, even some 70s that have been renovated. And so there's a little more maintenance and upkeep, but the rent levels are much more affordable, right? And I feel like over the course of time, my vesting thesis has very much been solid class B is a good place to be because it's more affordable in times of economic distress. People still, you know, need an affordable place to live and they might move down from a class A or if they can't afford to buy a home, they're going to rent. Class B, I think, is more insulated than some of the other asset classes in terms of more resistant to recessions, let's say. And class C is obviously a little bit older product, a little more downtrodden, needs some more TLC, more maintenance. Typically, there's uh, more issues with delinquency, right, that people live maybe more paycheck to paycheck, laborers and so forth. And it's not a bad investment, but I think you need to command a higher return because there's more risk involved. So the risk return has got to be there, right? And in fact, over the last few years, it, there was kind of a compression of cap rates between class A, B, and C. So it didn't make as much sense to buy in that environment, a class C, when you could pick up a class B for, you know, maybe the same cap rate, you know, the same valuation. So I think there's a lot of elements to it, but those are, those are, I guess, how I'd break down the you know, A, A, B, and C. And I, I'm still most bullish on B, but I do occasionally invest in a class, you know, A, and I would, I venture, you know, and I have invested in class C as well, right? But my, I put most of my, I guess, uh, eggs in the class B basket in terms of being the most recession resistant. Absolutely. Okay. It makes a ton of sense. And I, I've made that shift personally as well from C-class multifamily to B-class. I've made a lot of those same observations, really the, the ages of the properties, the amount of deferred maintenance, all these other things. And then combine that with exactly what you said about the cap rate compression and that spread narrowing, the risk-adjusted returns in C-class just kind of went away. It just didn't make as much sense. And it still doesn't, in my mind, to invest in C-class properties. But for the the passive investors out there who are thinking about this A versus B versus C-class multifamily, you know, they're receiving a pro forma offering memorandum from syndicator who's saying such and such class multifamily. Maybe we're buying a C-class, we're taking it up to a B-class. Sounds like a great opportunity. How do you think about that and evaluate that from a passive investor's angle. Can we really, do we believe that's possible? You know, how do we evaluate what the sponsor is saying versus whether we think it's doable and our own investing goals? What do you think about that? Yeah, good question. I do think where that property is makes it makes a big difference, right? I think if you're, it's the old theory where you want to buy, a, you want to buy the smallest house in, in a neighborhood of big homes, right? You want to buy the the worst home that needs, you can fix it up and then yours is going to be worth more because everything else around is worth more. So I think when it comes to class C housing, what I tend to focus on is just very much the micro neighborhood where it's at. If it's in a better than C neighborhood and you want to renovate that to a higher standard, right? Make it a nice, clean, safe, affordable place to live. I think there's a lot of merit to that business plan because you can command higher rents and people want to live in that neighborhood, right? But if you're You've got a C property that needs a lot of work, and it's in a C minus D neighborhood, or maybe there's crime and there's other elements that aren't conducive where people don't necessarily want to live there. That's that's where the risk comes in, and that's where I would steer away from Class C. So where I've invested in Class C has been more uh, a function of that I'm sold on the, the neighborhood, the location of the property, and that it's a it's hopefully a C in a B in a B neighborhood, right? And then if you want to put a certain amount of capex and improvements there and, and get it to be a place in command better rents and hopefully maybe over time shifting out to the clientele to people that can, you know, pay regularly and, you know, want that place to live in a nice neighborhood. Maybe there's good schools is another aspect. 
I think that uh, the neighborhood is a big part of my value proposition if I'm looking at Class C versus just you know what you can do to the property because you can't pick up a property and move it to a better neighborhood, right? Unfortunately. So I think finding a diamond in a rough, like a little bit more of a downtrodden property in a little, little bit nicer neighborhood, that that's where that strategy can, I think, really pay dividends. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, you briefly touched a bit earlier on property ages, you know, just the year built of a property. If it's 40 years old, it's going to be built in a certain way and have probably a certain level of disrepair, if you will. Maybe it's not well taken care of. Do you factor that into your own considerations here? For me, property age is like a huge factor, but for you, what are your thoughts on the actual ages of properties? Yeah, I think uh, it's typically the class C or the you know, 40-year-old property is probably going to be in need of, you know, if you could find a deal on it, let's say, you know, you can find a, a deal that's worth purchasing at a good enough price, it probably has deferred maintenance and it probably needs some work. So I think, I mean, you really have to, when you look at your underwriting, you have to look at, you know, what, what do you think it's going to really take to, to really re- revamp those units and make them a lot nicer. In some cases, is maybe lipstick's been put on a few times and it's just very big con- cosmetic changes, right? But I think in order to really command a bigger rent increase, you're probably going to have to go in oftentimes, right? And, you know, just get down to the just get down to the drywall and take everything out and redo flooring, cabinetry, toilets, showers, everything, right? Because at a certain point, you can't just keep band-aiding things, right? And there might be things you find behind the walls or ceilings, you know, moisture-related issues and so forth that they're going to be costly. So I think that's where due diligence really comes in to, to make sure that, you know, everything's being checked out in the inspections and that you're being very conservative and probably estimating more money towards CapEx than you think you really spend because sometimes you don't know until you get into it like that a 40, 50-year-old property is going to have a lot of issues uh, that you may not be able to uncover even in due diligence. So I just think really making sure that you or your sponsor are, you know, building in contingencies and all kinds of additional, you know, potential work that might have to have to be done to really improve the property and improve the product, right? To get, to get the rent bumps you're hoping. And then you got to look at the comps, right, too. What's, what are things running for around it in same and better condition? And that will inform how much you can really bump the rents, right? So I would imagine you as a CFO, your professional background, you probably have a very unique angle on the underwriting, the financials, the accounting around multifamily syndications. And you oftentimes you ever run into sponsors, you know, making egregious accounting errors or you run across any red flags in the numbers that you're maybe uniquely positioned to recognize. I can't say that I've uncovered egregious errors, but I do like to cord through the numbers. So, yeah, a lot of this, most sponsors will, you know, send financials. And if they don't, I'll ask for them. Most of them send them automatically with some frequency, whether it be monthly or quarterly. And that's always a good practice, right? Because you want transparency. So as an investor, I, I want to make sure that I can look at the numbers anytime I want. And I'll pour through them. And I oftentimes will ask questions. Sometimes the classification of certain items aren't totally clear, right? And so I'll go back and ask them and, and again, part of this is to make sure, you know, and, and typically they're responsive, you know, and, and they've answered everything I've asked. So I think that's important. You want to make, make sure that as an investor, your your issues, your concerns, your inquiries are being, you know, responded to quickly. But, you know, it's not only during the operation, but in the underwriting, I, I like to pour through underwriting because that's something I like to do. And I'm, I spend majority of my career in FP&A. That's where it means you're forecasting the business, right? You're projecting what that, how that business is going to perform. And frankly, 
real estate's a lot easier to predict than a lot of other. <laughs> but I, I like to go through the assumptions and make sure that everything's, you know, reasonable, not a stretch, whether it's rent growth, exit cap, you know, I stress test things, break even equity and things like this. So, I mean, I, I want to get, before I put my money into deal, right, I want to be comfortable that there's not crazy assumptions that uh, that aren't realistic. So, but I do like to pour through the, the monthly results as well and make sure that things look like they're going according to plan, right? And and sometimes they'll provide a you know actual versus a budget, and that's even better, right? Because then you can see, okay, here's what they projected in the underwriting, and here's where they're at now. Some cases they don't, but but yeah, I think I like to always look at it analytically, and the truth's in the numbers, oftentimes, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Especially when it comes to execution versus what your plan was. So as a you know higher earning busy professional who's investing in real estate syndications, I, we're, you're oftentimes presented with a lot of ways to fund your investment in a real estate syndication. Folks out there, self-directed IRAs, solo 401ks, hey, get this you know life insurance plan and all these other things. How have you chosen to you know structure your own venture in this way? Are you using self-directed IRAs? Do you have any kind of solo 401ks or have you dug into life insurance? What have you decided is like the right way for you to do it? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, good question. I've definitely funded real estate investments through, through my self-directed IRA. So over the course of the last few years, I've moved a lot of my my portfolio, let's say, from equities, you know, stock and bond stuff into real estate. And I could do that through my self-directed IRA, right? It's not to say I'm totally bearish on the equities markets, but let's face it, there's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of things that are just really out of your control, you know, macroeconomic factors that are going on. And as we've seen a couple of times in the last two years, right, the values can come down 25, 30% in a very rapid period of time. And they'll go up most likely, but I think it's it's much more unpredictable, right? Whether you're buying in a, you know, individual stocks, mutual funds, S&P, index funds, whatever. I mean, everything's kind of moving together downward right now, right? And so I feel like it was wise to move some more out of equities and real estate. And I think it's probably good that we can't check the value of our real estate every day on our phone. <laughs> I think it helps sleep better at night. And yeah, in theory, maybe real estate, you know, maybe my real estate's not worth as much now as it was a year ago, but I'm not going to be sweating it because it's the long-term horizon. And and it, it, if, if it's fallen, it's probably not fallen 30%, right? Probably not. As long as you have tenants in there who are paying the rent and you're getting paid every month or every quarter to own it, then I don't consider that a problem. But hey, you know, maybe that's none of my business. How about how about life insurance? I mean, that's out there, you know, the whole infinite banking thing. Personally, I'm not a huge fan, but I have spoken with people who have used it and been, you know, happy with the the experience. Have you dug into that? I have looked into it a little bit, but I'm not doing it. I was probably presented with it for the first time like three or four years ago. And I looked at it and I had my financial advisor look at it and ask various other people. And frankly, I think what it came down to was, yeah, I think I'm a relatively smart guy when it comes to financials, but it was it was even hard for me to understand, right? It was just so complicated. And I think a lot of assumptions were being made on some of these whole life insurances and so forth and, you know, what, what you'd be able to borrow at and, you know, the guaranteed returns and so forth that some of these insurance policies would or wouldn't have. And there was just too many question marks I had, and it was too complicated. So I, I didn't go that route. I know it might work for some people, but I just decided I'd stick with like more straightforward investments versus that vehicle. That makes sense. I mean, stick with what you know. Now, it sounds yeah. like on the, or stick with what you understand is probably a better way to put it. So on the self-directed IRA front, I don't want to get too far away from that, but to ask a follow-up. So I've used a self-directed IRA myself, 
And it's frankly, probably my biggest regret as a real estate investor that I use a self-directed IRA. Now I've invested in profitable things, so I can, can't complain too much. But to me, the administrative side of using a self-directed IRA to invest in real estate that uses leverage, so we're getting into UBIT and all this other thing, it's just such a hassle that, frankly, I hate it. And as soon as what it's invested in now sells, I'm done. I'm never doing it again. But you don't seem to have that same opinion or experience. And hey, that's fine. Totally great. But why don't you consider it as big a headache as I do? No, you made a really good point. And I think that's one learning as well, because I have invested you know, into syndications with my SDI, and it's subject to UBIT, UBTI, these, these types of things. Many of those haven't been sold yet, so I haven't had to deal with them. But I have kind of shifted my philosophy about what's maybe most appropriate to invest uh, using an S self-directed IRA. And I think it's more debt funds, you know, the stuff you get 1099 INT tax forms for, because then there's no let, you know, no no uh, no tax repercussions. So I started to, for the newer investments in a self-directed IRA, very much focused on debt funds or notes where you're just, you're playing the bank, right? You might get a 10, 8 to 10% fixed return for some period of time. And I think that'll add up over time. But you're right. I think that there is complications and make sure, you, you know, folks listen, make sure you, you work with your tax advisors to make sure that what you what you might be doing is prudent and then make sure that all the taxes get filed timely, right? But you're right. There, there's complications. I don't want to downplay that. But I think early on, I wasn't as keyed into that, but I've become more keyed into it. So I've kind of altered my strategy and I'll, I'll do, do a lot more debt, you know, debt, uh, loan, loaning my money out through the self-directed IRA where I'm not subject to UBIT and UBTI. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, one of my biggest regrets, and I mean, I have investors in my deals who use self-directed retirement accounts, you know, as long as people go into it, you know, knowing what to expect, then, you know, it's your money. You, you live your life, make the right decisions for you. But I think there are so many voices out there saying that this is, quote unquote, a tax-free way to invest in real estate, which is frankly completely not true. There are taxes your self-directed IRA and incur under certain circumstances like leveraged real estate syndications, all that kind of a thing. So it's it's good to hear that, uh, I don't know, maybe you're <laughs> maybe we're on the same page with regards to shifting our self-directed IRA uh, strategies, considering all the paperwork headache and <laughs> In fact, I heard somebody put it really in a really clean way when they said, and it was maybe a, a podcast put out by my tax advisor or something like this, but, you know, real estate's already tax advantaged, right? So, you know, a lot of your cash flow gets just nullified by depreciation, right? And so you're you're making money, you're not paying tax on it until it's time you sell or if you don't do 1031, et cetera. So it's already tax advantaged. So to invest with your self-directed IRA, which is another tax deferral strategy, it's kind of like redundant. So again, that that goes into you know maybe it's more appropriate to just invest in syndications and some of these things with your own money, and then there's there's other things like notes and so forth where you really will shelter that income from further taxes, and you won't be subject to these other taxes. So I think it it could be a good approach, but you just could maybe look at the different types of investments that you wanna that you wanna deploy through your self directed IRA. I'd say yeah, look before you leap. I guess is probably the best way to put it. So great. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. 
Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Dan, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the the show, as you know, because you've been on the show before. So I got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is your favorite book? It's hard to say favorite, but one that I've read fairly recently, and it's it's really in-depth and really brings a lot of good insights, is the Ray Dalio book, Changing World Order. And uh, part, partly, I think I'm a history buff. I like to read about history. And this has a lot to do, his book has a lot to do with kind of the financial markets history and in different places in the world and different periods of time, what's worked, what hasn't, the cycles that, you know, the business cycles that we've seen throughout history. And part of, I think his, his objective, right, is try and learn from history and try to educate others how to learn from history, right? So when we're looking ahead, we can't just be looking at a vacuum. We, we should look back at periods of time that maybe there was some correlation or similarity where we're at today. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? That's one favorite saying. So I think the book is full of a depth of historical kind of examples about how things went, you know, went well or didn't go well financially for different societies and different economies and, you know, the rise and fall of different empires, if you will, right? It's a good book. It's a dense book, kind of a a difficult read. I've got my copy right over there, but very good, very relevant to where we find ourselves today. So we had your favorite book. Now, moving on to number two, what is a tool, strategy, system, piece of software, piece of technology, something in your business or life that you just could not possibly live without? For me, I have to say spreadsheets. <laughs> I spent much of my career involved in spreadsheets, and it obviously helps manage my, my work life as well as my personal and financial life. So I think spreadsheets are an amazing tool. Before we had them, I'm not sure what people did. <laughs> All right, great. I love it. So. Number three, before we go here, where are you excited to travel in 2023? We haven't locked it in, but my family, we're focused on hoping and hoping to travel to Korea in 2023. Awesome. My wife is Korean-American, and my kids are old enough now at 8 and 10 that they could probably, you know, get some good value from a trip like this. And then my in-laws, my my wife's parents are still around and in relatively good health, so we're hoping that they can also participate in this trip with us and they haven't been back in a number of years and they you know we meet some relatives and see the sites and i haven't been to asia at all myself so that would be a big highlight so well hopefully we can get something like this lined up for 2023 and go, go to korea very cool my fiance is also korean american her parents moved over from korea when they were in their late teens early 20s and uh and we may get to go there someday ourselves so Funny, uh, right. funny coincidence. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. Feel free to call or text me. I'm at 925-917-4802. And my email is d2rowley, that's R-O-W-L-E-Y, at yahoo.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. 
Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that thumbs up, hit that subscribe button, and we'll catch you here on the next one. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.